Welcome to Beer and a Movie, the podcast from a bunch of beer and movie fans in the South Texas hinterlands. My name is Ethan Thompson. I'm employed at a local institution of higher education in a professorial capacity. With me here today is... Carlos, uh, record store owner, movie watcher, beer drinker. And with me, as always... Dave Gurney. I am employed as a teacher of media studies at a local institution of higher learning. And I've been a craft beer drinker for most of my adult life, and more recently, a home brewer. Today on the show, we'll be talking about this little film, maybe people have heard of it, called Ready Player One. Bing, bing, bing. Bing, bing, bing. That means it's time for us to uh, pour a little beer. What have you got for us today? Indeed. I have a beer that's actually tied in with the film. How wow, about that? Like this is a literal tie-in. Now, we literal were Literal tie-in as in, like, official tie-in? Well, no. That's, mm. so, so that's the thing. So Stone Brewing. Okay. Yes. People may be familiar with this brewery out of uh, Probably. Escondido, California, I believe. They have made this beer. It's a, they actually have it labeled Ultra Limited. That's being released Ooh. just now. and Very uh, rare. Never before. You can see the label art. and Not you listeners, but you in the room can see the it's label it's, art. It's green and purple. There lo- looks like a DeLorean. On yes, exactly. Yeah, purple with, DeLorean. With the stone sort of demon logo. Yeah. And, uh, and some other, like there's the Batman, Mobi- Batmobile, the Ghostbusters hearse. Yes. yes. Um, some other 80s pop culture. So they decided to rip off the 1980s just like this film. Well, essentially, and even <laughs> in their write-up on the back of the label... Um, I'll just read the final part because it's pretty long. Um, Saying that, okay, we would become heroes only to be dashed constantly and then renewed again with the flashing promise at the start of all video games, Ready Player One. This beer is for us. Open, remember, and celebrate us. The first and last of the arcade generation. So it looks like they're taking advantage there that Ready Player One is a phrase and not just the title of a book or... Exactly, right? So so I think they're kind of getting around like whether or not the film studio would have wanted yes. to have partnered with them to put out a beer along with their film. They're going ahead and jumping on this and saying, Whoa. hey, we know this is happening. Let's do it. So uh, open let's open it up. up. Yeah. No, no fancy virtual bottle on that thing. No high-tech opening no. apparatus. No, just pouring that down. All right. Here we go. So, yeah, so an IPA. Hopped right. with what? So IPA, India Pale Ale, this is hopped with Incognito. Never heard of that. Which I don't think is maybe its, act, its it own it's... hop variety. I think it may be some sort of blend of okay. hops or something. Yeah. I, I haven't done the research on that. But um, as, as people may or may not know, again, we're, we're trying to be a little more deliberate about this, that an India Pale Ale tends to be an ale that has an aggressive hop profile, lots of hops put in there, um, usually very aromatic. And Stone is one of the like key players in that popularizing the West Coast IPA of lots and lots of hops. Right. More so than anyone, probably. Yeah, definitely. They, they, they part of that West Coast IPA um, bandwagon that was yeah. uh, started many years ago now. But yeah, this uh, smells like an IPA. I mean, you get that citrusy, dank kind of uh, smell to it. Uh, yeah. I'm definitely... Nice, clear one. They're not going for the hazy, sort of uh, newer style New England IPA. Still West Coast. We'll get to the flavor a little bit later, but but let's talk about this film. Ready Player One. Ready Player One. So, um, as Ethan kind of set us up here, uh, a film that you probably have heard about from a director who you most certainly have heard about, right? Steven Spielberg. um, Easily one of the most 
notorious, widely known filmmakers of his or really most... Um, Notorious in a very safe and unthreatening way. I was going to say, say notorious is notorious, not the right word. Maybe not the word. <laughs> okay, widely celebrated. And we, Wide, can get, yes. we can get yeah. to the we can get to the criticisms, and I'm, and I'm sure there are plenty. But the fact of the matter is, this man has made huge money um, with many films over the years, Great and has, movies, and has become synonymous with American cinema. filmmaking, yeah. American yeah, cinema, Hollywood sure. films. So. Coming to this film with that reputation, but after many years of not really having done something that was super big budget action yeah. oriented, okay? And this is a sci-fi action film uh, based on a novel of the same name by Ernest Cline that came out back in 2011. Um, the basic premise here is that we are in a future version of society where everybody, pretty much everybody, is tapped into this sort of virtual game environment that they're spending really the majority of their time in. It's called the Oasis. And within the Oasis, there has been a huge event where the the founder, the kind of creator of the Oasis, has passed away, and his will, essentially, this video that he leaves behind, tells everybody that there is a sort of Treasure hunt, or it's like uh, Easter eggs to find, Easter right? Egg, right? Yeah, of. he's he's hidden these Easter yeah. eggs, these three keys throughout the oasis. That if they can be found, the person who finds them will then gain ownership of the oasis, which is a sort of multi. I don't know if they put it in trillions of dollars or whatever, but it's just a huge business concern. So obviously, you have um, everybody there is kind of interested, but you have these groups of people who consider themselves egg hunters, right? The, yeah. the actual Easter egg hunters, and they get abbreviated as gunters. And you have the kind of solo people who are doing that, like individual players. Um, the primary lead here is Wade Watts, um, who is going after these Easter eggs along with many others. And beyond that, you have this corporation, IOI, that is seeking to get the keys themselves so that they can have that. Yeah, sort they of figured out that what, what they need to do is just hire a bunch of people and exactly. make it a business venture to find those things because this is worth so much money that right. how, however much they invest. And they are essentially the bad guys in the right. movie. Right, exactly. And so they have like this essentially farm. This almost, it's almost like indentured servitude that they have these yeah. players you know, enter into these contracts where they pretty much sign over their entire lives to go and spend time with the high-tech equipment that the company produces to be able to go through the Oasis and find these things. They hire teams of researchers to find out. Because all of that um, hunt is based in the concept that this um, the, the creator um, yeah. was obsessed with popular culture. Right, and right. And so the, the entire game is sort of laden with all of these references to particularly 1980s and and in the book that was the case it was pretty much almost exclusively 70s and 80s culture the movie has updated that somewhat brought in a lot more 90s culture and and actually made some different changes and we can talk about maybe why that happened but the basic premise here wade watts and his crew ragtag crew of independent operators looking for these easter eggs all right so um i i actually uh tried to read this book uh, a couple of years ago. I, it was recommended. I heard people raving about it. And so I started to read it, and I only got, I don't know, 20 pages maybe into it, and I just felt like, you know, this is not for me. This is a YA genre 
Um, and it's just not for me. It did, it, it but, felt like it didn't have any depth to it, nothing that really interests me. So I, and that, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with such things existing. And for me in the film too, um, I pretty quickly decided this wasn't a film meant for me. And yet I have a whole lot of reasons of why I hate this movie. Um, and it's as an example of our current popular culture and film culture produced, directed by someone who's our most well-known director, and this is what he chooses to do. So I have all kinds of hate for this film. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I am curious, though, just to hear from you, Dave, and Seth, our engineer, too, uh, who, who have read the book, what you thought about it and how it compared with the book. Right. Well, I, I mean, so I think it compares very closely in the sense that the basic concept is there. I mean, they, yeah. they've done nothing to change that very radically. They did change a lot of the specific references, and I think part okay. of that had to do with they couldn't get the rights to certain things ah. that they wanted to use. Um, I know Blade Runner was a particular um, sore spot because, obviously, for, for those who are into film, they just made a Blade Runner sequel, so I think right. the owners to the rights of that did not necessarily want to have a film competing that was also doing Blade Runner-esque stuff. But um, regardless, I think they found some pretty interesting substitutions to put yeah. in there. Um, I did make it through the whole book. I agree with you. I, I think, you know, from a stamp standpoint of the prose, I think it very much is a YA novel. Though, strangely enough, I can't imagine a kid who was born in 2000 really getting a whole lot out of this novel because it's all references to 80s and Well, this and is 70s. my... This I is mean, my- it's... This is one of my main beefs with the film is that it is 80s nostalgia for people who didn't actually live through the 80s. It's huh. so superficial. It's uh, There's no reference in this where, where you can, or, or I as someone who grew up in the 80s can appreciate it. Like, oh, I remember that now. Like, because everything is things that we hear or see, to me, all the time anyway. So anyone would know, knows about, you know, Prince or... Uh, oh, this thing punk, there's no like specific punk artist in it cited at all. It's just this thing punk. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was all so superficial so far as 80s references that I thought it was, it's, it's just accessible to anyone that has heard of this thing, the 1980s. And it, in fact, it, it flattens everything so that there's, a, there's one scene where he's trying to uh, pick out a, a, an outfit to wear to this big party to impress a girl. And, of course, he dresses in the 80s. So he's just like, part of being in this game is you can wear whatever you want to wear. So right. he's like, he tries on a Prince outfit. He tries on a punk outfit. He tries on other things that I can't remember. Um, but it's like, it's all the same. Yeah. It doesn't, there's no, there's no meaning to Prince dressing this way or punks dressing that way. It's all just fashion, interchangeable, and meaningless. And for me, I was hoping that I would at least appreciate, like, some depth to the references and the... Uh, of the 80s that this is sp- supposed to be this, you know, ut- somehow nostalgic utopian era that this kid wants to live in. Uh-huh. Never mind that there's no criticism about that to start with. It just is. Hmm. Um, so I, I couldn't en- enjoy it on that level. Um, you know, there were scenes where I was entertained, um, where I felt like I was inside of a video game. And that was kind of fun, but then it kept going and kept going and kept going, and I just got really tired of it. Hmm. And overall, I was just bored with the film. Um, it, it it just, you know, I, I don't know. Steven Spielberg, is this the best you can do? Can you make something a little more interesting for okay. us? Well, the, and, I, and I don't want to, you know, just directly counter that, because I don't necessarily know that this film was 
seeking any depth in, in those references. And I don't know that it may, would make sense to in this kind of video game virtual mm-hmm, right. environment that it's going in. I mean, it's it's using them as kind of stylistic choices to kind of like create this landscape that you exist in. Um, but I but I actually do think there were a few moments where there was some depth there. The Shining sequence, for instance, I think only really works well if you've seen the film and you know it pretty well and you know what those beats should be. Because... And that was my favorite part of the okay, film. Well. And and um, and also, that was totally not in the book at all. No, it wasn't. You're right. But go ahead. I, I feel like you want to say something here, Carlos. Yeah, so if... I mean, the whole... From the trailer, it just looks like, okay, we're going to mash a bunch of pop culture together. And if none of those references really have depth or matter then like what really what's the point you know and you know full disclosure did not see it because I could not get I just couldn't get myself into a theater because the reason you know from what I just said is just seeing the trailer I'm like okay sure there's a DeLorean there's the Iron Giant there's Chun-Li from Street Fighter there's you know whatever but like so what what it what it what about any of this is supposed to make me give a shit about it? Right. Well, I think, okay, so there, so there's where, you know, character and, and sort of the conflict comes in. And for me, the, the basic sort of conflict here is sort of corporate capitalism versus sort of independent entrepreneurship, right? I mean, when, when we think about Wade and his team, it's about them being these independent operators who do not have the kind of capital that they would need to really be able to fund right. themselves in the way they need to. And then IOI with Nolan Sorrento, this sort of evil CEO um, who's just out there to grab everything that he can, right? To, to take over this oasis because it's worth trillions of dollars. Now, it's interesting that part of how they mark him as being despicable is that he doesn't have any of those references, right? You remember the yeah, scene he where he's know. talking to Wade and he's got the he's earpiece in and cheat, he's got yeah. like a team of people behind him saying like, Oh yeah, this is the thing. You know, like, and he's our kind of that actor is our go to bad guy now, right? He just Ben he, Mendelsohn. Yeah, he was. He's a he's the replaced Star Wars Ed Harris. Movie as the that's right. That's right. I mean, he's a pretty great actor. Yeah, though. I no, mean, I he, like he him. He can yeah. he can do that really well. Um, but but to me, that was where it was like, okay, so this is to to my mind, that's an interesting story for this moment. Is like, okay. I am personally a little bit fed up with corporate capitalism and, and the kind of uh, logics that it brings with it. So a movie that sort of pokes at that, I, I'm okay. Yeah, but I'm okay that I that's a core conflict. Then again, I mean, we could talk about, okay, how, how much can it really do that when it's made by a major film studio well, with its biggest direct, you know. And I don't think it does it. I mean, they're just bad guys, and I don't think... There's no... It, there's no real uh, examination of how the world got as screwed up as it is. No. And, and, and what there is that's very telling to me is there's this line uh, that the narrator, the main character, is talking about. He's trying to set the history for how it got to how it is. And he says something about how, well, that was about the time that everyone just stopped trying to do anything or stopped trying to change things. And that's how I feel about this film. Like It's an example of just giving up. Mm-hmm. Just making something that has a bunch of references and doesn't have any real meaning there. And for me, you know, I, I, I saw this in the draft house, and prior to the screening of the film, they had this short, um, special little preview thing where they had the, the guy that wrote the book, uh, what's his name? Ernest Klein. Right. Uh, showing off his car, which is he took his earnings from that, that, that book and this movie. He's made a gazillion dollars, right? And he, he got a DeLorean, and he turned it into this hybrid DeLorean Ghostbusters. Uh, what's the other? Buckaroo Bonsai, is that the other thing? Okay, yeah. yeah. 
So you just get right there that the guy that created this thing and wrote this, he is like that 80s fanboy. There's no critical component to this at all. This is just, I like this culture and I want to celebrate this culture. Uh, and that's all it amounts to. Um, and for me, that's just kind of sickening. That, that, that line, you know, of, uh, well, we can't do any better, so this is what we're going to do. And, you know, Steven Spielberg, who could go out and make any movie, he essentially is just making the equivalent of um, the other stuff that's out there, like, you know, this uh, a Marvel Comics movie or something like that. You know, this is just whatever popular thing he comes up that he can make. And, yeah, we'd like to see him do a big budget action-y movie. But he, at the end of the day, has nothing to say. And, you know, I don't really... He's not a filmmaker that I care about seeing his movies because he's made them all. because of that. I was looking through the last movies that he's made and several of like the last of the worst films I've seen in recent years. I would uh, say he hasn't made a good movie in over 15 years. The Post was a terrible film. Well, we disagree on that. Yeah, <laughs> I think it was an awful, awful film. Bridge of Spies was extremely boring. Uh, Lincoln I did like. I, was, I like but that. But Daniel Day-Lewis is the only yeah, reason. Yeah, right, right. Cast right. anybody else in that movie's a flop. So, I don't know. I just... Um, I think that, you know, if you've ever you know listened to a podcast or heard an interview with anybody that has anything to do with Hollywood or filmmaking, it's like a very well-known kind of rule of thumb now that anything original is not going to get a big studio behind it because you need some kind of recognizable intellectual property. And that being the rule now with, like, all the Marvel movies and the DC movies and the remakes and, you know, the adaptations yeah. or whatever, it was basically like somebody was like, hmm, okay, so how, how many IPs can we license to put into one movie? And who is the most recognizable person we could get to put the name on it? And then you right. know, probably make a lot of money doing that. Fuck, might as well. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole th- – to everything about this movie screams, like, yeah, we could just right. do this. The only thing is, like, I'm surprised they didn't get Nick Jonas or somebody like that to be the main character, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, that <laughs> was the one thing. I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting that they had this kid who's not even that good looking as the central character. Right, right. It, they could have had a Disney, you know, uh, star. Now, I, I do think, so, you know, just to, I do think the cynical view is there, and you, and you guys are doing a good job of capturing <laughs> that. I don't know that I'm on board with it being quite as sort of blatant a money grab. It's definitely a money grab. But but I think there's something there to the story. I did find something redeeming about this idea that, hey, even in an era where it seems like corporate control and total sort of nihilism has come to dominate, that there is this glimmer of hope and there's this way that these people sort of work their way through that and are able to find themselves in a better place by the end of it. So I think overall what I'm what I'm trying to say is that when you have sci-fi dystopia as the dominant, right? Which I think it is in sci-fi these days. We've already talked about films on the podcast that, that kind of have this... Annihilation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. This yeah. dystopian kind of future that I want something occasionally that gives me a, a glimmer of hope, right? Well, I mean, that, okay, so the hope in this one is, all right, so everybody's only happy being in the virtual world, but now that the good guy's taken over, he's going to shut it down two days a week and everybody has to go walk, take a walk or something and not be in the virtual world. Like, that's the extent of the optimism in this film. Fair enough. I'm not saying that it's giving you, like, this grand plan for how to, how to create a better society, but I do think it's at least trying to get us someplace where it's, it's a, 
it's a possibility that, okay, even if things go awry, even if things go down the wrong track, that there's ways of steering back from it. All right, I'm going to, I said we were done with this, but I, I'm not done. Uh-oh. I got something else to say. <laughs> so, what about this scene in this film where there is like a, what should be like a horrific terrorist attack, basically? Where so everybody lives in these stacked right, motor right. homes right. and they like bomb them. I can't even remember what it is, right? But his his aunt and her boyfriend die. It's like this yeah. horrible stuff, but it just it plays really quickly. Yeah. And there's no real depth or sense of any like suffering. Like this is a community with filled with all these really poor people. Right. And in the film, it's just like it's kinda like playing a video game. Oh, you dropped a bomb in that area and so there's a big explosion. Well, let's move it, on. Hey, man, there's there's bombings in Syria every day. I mean, like that is the world that we live in, unfortunately. Well, what I'm saying is that there's no, again, there's not any depth there's with not the way that they redeem. represent not it in the to, film. In no, the I, film. I, I they don't suggest that. that there's actually like much cost to that. Beyond right. it might as well just happen virtually. Right. I mean, I I get that, and 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 I think that's a that is a very apt critique of of what goes on in that sequence. I think it's being played more as, okay, you know, this is how desperate they are to get at this guy that they're willing to kind of just obliterate these yeah. people. Um, it's what gets him, you know, Sorrento and, and his hench person arrested at the end, I think, or at least part of it. Right. So, right. I mean, there is like, a, you know, some sort of pay payback for it or, you know, retribution, but... But yeah, no, it's you don't. It's not because you care about the characters, and they kind of deliberately do that, right? They make that step uncle character into just total irredeemable piece of yeah, you know, yeah. whatever. Well, so it's not so bad that he dies, right? And and the aunt kind of, you know, she may be a little bit relatable, but yeah, I don't know. That's... I think that the scene you're talking now, granted, I haven't seen the film, but I would say that the only thing that might be there in that particular bit is that the line between the virtual world and the real world is real world is becoming blurred because of how much time people are spending in the oasis Mm -hmm. but just like i had to put in a lot of work to get anything out of that scene that you just described what david was talking about earlier you know the capitalist versus the independent entrepreneurs and whatever that is a really good conflict that's a good story and that's a compelling narrative but it's such a afterthought it seems and everything else that, okay, so this movie's about 80s pop culture references, and we'll add this in here to try to give it some kind of narrative structure. It requires so much of me, the moviegoer, to try to extract some meaning out of it that why am I going to go put in that much effort into a film that ultimately is, you know, just kind of... I wish uh, well, my 15-year-old son really enjoyed it a lot. I wish he was here to explain <laughs> why. But I, 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 I'm sure that it had a lot to do with how... how there was a lot of excitement and action, and it did seem like you're in the middle of the video game. I will. I'm going to try to be positive here. I did really enjoy the scene for The Shining because it was an example where if you've seen The Shining, it's all about someone who hasn't seen The Shining finding themselves in that situation. Mm-hmm. It really worked as like immersive virtual experience as if you could like be inside the film, which right. I really appreciated. And that was funny and really well done. And that, on its own, was a lot of fun to watch, but the rest of it was just, it grew tiresome to me. Which brings us back around to the audience knowing something that the characters on screen don't. It all comes back to Hitchcock's theory of uh, suspense. You know what we need to come back to, though, is the beer. Yeah, absolutely. So I I think we all know where where folks stand. We'll we'll recap at the end with with, uh, our our comments on Ready Player One. But this beer... 
I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm feeling a little underwhelmed by this really? thing. I mean, I, I have high expectations for Stone. They're, and they're, you're, you, you are, a, you like IPA a lot, too. I do like IPA. Yeah. And, and I mean, it definitely has those IPA characteristics. There's definitely a, more of a, I would say, West Coast bitterness on this yeah. one than um, a lot of newer IPAs. So it, in some ways, it's a throwback. But it's also got a really, I mean, what is it, 7 point something percent? And it's got a very multi kind of body to it that I'm just not really... Lo- I mean, I, it, sometimes that balances out, but in this case, it's not for me in the way that it usually does. Maybe Stone is just part of the problem. They're just all becoming about the label. <laughs> and it's the all about surface. It's just... It, it is one hell of a... One hell of a cool-looking... It's a Spielberg-esque label. Yeah. And uh, uh, what, what do you think, Carlos? I'm... You know, I tend to stray away from IPAs in general. I find that... Um, you know, I don't go for the hoppy bitterness, and I think that a lot of times now with, you know, this IPA movement that, you know, was mentioned earlier, sometimes, not necessarily in this case, but sometimes I feel like an IPA is hoppy and bitter just to see how hoppy and bitter that they can mm. make it, just for the sake of being the most IPA IPA. Right. Um, so that being said, I don't, I, I, on the inverse of what David said, had very low expectations because I don't particularly care for IPAs, and I think that, you uh, like this one? I think that I, I kind of like it, probably for the reasons that David. And it has doesn't. a little bit more of the malt to it, so it's yeah, not just. Yeah, I like it a little bit more, and yeah. you know, it's you know, I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. Uh, life is all about expectation management, and I had very low expectations for this, so I'm pleasantly surprised. <laughs> all right, so uh, we're going to uh, follow up our discussion of uh, Ray Player One with another Spielberg film, who we've thoroughly dissed. Maybe we'll have more positive things to say about him. I 100 percent have more positive. Okay, things to say in this we're going to talk about part. Minority Report when we come back. Okay, so if we're going to talk about Minority Report, that means we need to crack open another beer here. So I have uh, another Stone beer. I decided to go with the same All brewery right. and trying to go a little bit thematic here. It's it's a n- relatively new release, um, which this one isn't ultra-limited, but it's rationed release. Rationed. <laughs> so I'm, I'm guessing they're holding up, holding back some and that they're maybe going to release Proper it later. Proper dystopian term. Right. But, uh, but totalitarian, right, because we are talking about another sort of dystopian sci-fi yeah. Yeah. film. All right. And, uh, but this one is in style an imperial Russian stout, which I know is a style that Carlos enjoys. It's one that I like, too. Pretty heavy... On the alcohol, I think this is like a 10.6% ABV beer, which, um, again, pretty heavy. It is pretty heavy. Um, you know, not going to be sort of the kind of thing that you're going to knock back on the beach. But, uh, <laughs> well, maybe like a cold Russian beach, like where you were like, <laughs> already exiled. Exiled, right. yeah. A cold yeah, yeah. dystopian Russian beach, right? right. Where you're going to need something strong to get you yes. through those ridiculous times. But, um, you know, in contrast, I think this, you know, harkens back to our episode where we had uh, the Divine Reserve, right? That was another Imperial Stout right. that we were drinking. And, you know, I don't know if I've ever had Stouts from Stone before. They're so, I so associate them with, um, well, with the IPAs. Well, they have a few that they do. You're right. They, yeah. they do tend to go more on the on the hop-forward side of things into the IPAs and, um, and strong ales. But... Uh, they have this. They also have one that they do annually called Woot Stout that I feel like maybe yeah I've seen that one before. Are, I don't think I've ever tried it. It's like a w- collaboration where they have like another brewer, but then also Will Wheaton, who speaking of sci-fi, you know, a guy who's pretty um, 
Stand by me uh, to uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Right, I was going to say, especially yeah, Star Trek Next right. Generation, which I think a lot of people associate him with. But so much darker beer, you're not going to see through this thing. And, you know, definitely not the same kind of hop aroma, nope. you know, but much maltier, much darker, much uh, roastier. So anyway, we'll sip on this while we talk about Minority Report, which is Spielberg's film uh, from way back in... 2002. 2002, right? So and uh, adapted from ago. a Philip K. Dick short story, I believe. That's right. I believe so. Yes, exactly. So uh, Minority Report, um, for those who, who it's been a while, you know, we're talking about another sci-fi film set in a... Not too distant future. Um, 2049, I think. Is that what they peg it as? Yeah. Yeah. So, sorry, 2054. I'm looking Uh, at that. But 2049, I bet you're thinking Blade Runner because that was, yeah, right. But uh, but 2054, and the basic conceit here is that the law enforcement community, um, in particular, they've sort of worked this out in a test site location in Washington, D.C., has found these precogs, these precognitive figures who are able to see into the very near future crimes that are about to be committed, and instead of arresting people after they've been committed, they can send in squads to arrest them just before the crime actually gets committed. Sometimes seconds before. Seconds before, right? in the beginning. So leading this squad is Tom Cruise, uh, playing the character of John Anderton, and he's been overseeing this sort of pilot program, and it's been very successful, and it's about to be launched nationally, but just as that's about to happen, lo and behold, who becomes predicted to be the next pre-crime criminal? John Anderton himself. Um, So then most of the film takes place as this sort of uh, chase, you know, with uh, Anderton eluding the authorities who are after him, and him trying to kind of figure out why he would be committing this crime against somebody who he doesn't really even know. Yeah, and he doesn't whose understand. name he doesn't recognize, never right, met before. Right, so, that, so that's kind of the, the majority of the film is kind of seeking him. So yeah. revisiting Minority Report, right? This is all revisiting because we had all seen this years right. ago. Yes, it was a revisit. How did we feel about it? I, I, uh, I enjoyed it a lot uh, up until kind of like an hour and a half or so in, I felt like towards the end of the second act, into the third, it really just packs a whole lot of exposition and uh, didn't play out very well in terms of structure. But I did uh, really, I like going back and watching the film and thinking about what in that vision of the future from 2002 has played out already and what hasn't. One of the things that was interesting to me is that they've got all these great gestural controls that we become really familiar <laughs> right. with because of iPhones. But then they all they're they're always when they want to see a file they like they use these little glass um, pieces of glass like discs. It's yeah. funny because it's like they're still tied to this material technology to to access. It made stuff. me think of Inside Out. Did you? I, I don't mean, remember that. So have you th- this the animated the, film, I did see that, film yeah. from a few years back and memories are stored in these like they seem like glass like balls that are oh, like, yeah. rolling around. Yeah. So it was funny because I don't know if Pixar was influenced by Minority yeah. Report and its design. I mean, it's much more colorful, right? These yeah. balls are. 
Um, it was just funny to me that, you know, the idea that you would sit at a computer and you would need you would to go get some kind of physical media, thing yeah. to put it in yeah. rather than just having it all there digitally that you could access. This movie is set in, I think, 2040-something, right? 2054. 2054, there you go. So that was kind of fun uh, uh, for me to see. And then the other thing, like uh, one of the most famous aspects of it, well, in my world anyway, is the targeted advertising that they do where it right. recognizes like your eyes and and then, you know, targets you with ads. most recent purchase. And yeah, stuff, and of yeah. course, we're all living in a world where that is constantly what we're exposed to through our social media and just being yeah. online and so on. Um, I did enjoy that. I enjoyed uh, the film more than Ready Player One. Um, you know, I think it holds up for the most part, um, but I don't know if I could recommend people going back and necessarily watching it again. Well, on the other side of that, 100% go back and watch this movie yeah. because it is a good movie. <laughs> okay. I, uh, I, I've seen, probably seen this movie dozens of times from, you know, when it was playing on cable channels a yeah. lot. And then also just, it's just a movie that I enjoy, but I hadn't seen it in a really long time. And I think that because of how, like, kind of ridiculously stylized it is, it holds up because it's not trying to, like, look the way that other films of that time looked. Like, some of the lighting is just, like, crazy blown out. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All the time. And that, in some weird way, helps it age well because no no filmmaker in their right mind would ever do that because it (laughs) looks kind of ridiculous at times. But it also gives it this you know, kind of dreamlike feel yeah. at times, which yeah. is very tied into the precogs and how they, you know, predict these uh, crimes and things like that. And, you know, gr- you know, good twist, I think. And yeah. nice subplot running through it. They, the whole Anne Lively subplot that ends up, you know, everything wraps up nicely at the end. I, you know, whereas you said, you structurally had, you know, some issues with the over exposition at, at the end. I, I, I particularly didn't. Mm. And, you know, two of, who I'd have to say maybe for me the least watchable actors that have ever existed in Tom Cruise and Colin Farrell. I don't particularly care for either of them. Uh, Tom Cruise, especially Colin Farrell, like whatever. I just, I don't particularly, if, if he's billed as the top role in a movie, I'm not gonna be like, Oh, Colin Farrell's in this. I have to go see this. I've, I've always found him kind of off putting, but especially I will actively avoid a Tom Cruise movie. Oh, wow. See, I, I, I'm kind of there with you. Although I have, I have this really tortured, relationship with with Tom Cruise as an actor because I really do love some of his films. I mean there are, there are just some of his films that I would Magnolia for instance. Yeah. I think Magnolia is a fantastic film and I know lots of people don't love that film but one of the things I love about it is that role that he plays. Yeah, but he's kind of in, not super likable in it. No, he's not he's not supposed to be but it has depth. He yeah. like he changes. But I, I think that's kind of why I enjoy that movie and enjoy him in it is that he's right. not, I'm not supposed to like him. Right. And it helps Well, ease I'll me take in. I'll tell you my favorite Tropic Thunder. He is Oh, there you I go. I was going there. Well, yes. And what what was the Brilliant the one Tropic a few Thunder. years back with uh, Doug Liman? Was it Edge of Time? Was it Edge of Darkness? No, was it? The one that was like the trapped in a loop kind I of I say it was Edge of Darkness okay, with, well, with Emily Blunt. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I thought Edge that was... Edge of Tomorrow. Edge of Tomorrow. Yes, that was really good. I, I liked it, but again, had less to do necessarily with him and his acting chops than it did with the concept and the way it played out. And I really... So again, I have these films of his that I really enjoy, but it's it's not necessarily because of him, with maybe a few exceptions. And also, I'm just... I'm, I 
just do not feel good about Scientology, and he no. is the, <laughs> he is the poster boy yeah. Scientologist. So yeah. so anything that he's kind of involved with, I mean, I even remember that being a factor when I went to see Minority Report because I think that was just as I was becoming aware of Scientology and his role in the whole organization yeah. and seeing that and being like, oh, I kind of like this movie, but anyway, but this guy, <laughs> yeah, but 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 style wise, I mean, the the look of this film, you're right, is totally. Unique. I mean, I don't yeah. think there's anything quite like it before or since in terms of just it's so washed out looking. Yeah. It's so high contrast. Um, like you say, it's it's as if a lot of the scenes are like overlit. It's funny because I was watching it on DVD on a H on my you know of course my high definition TV, right. and I always kept wondering like how much is this weird look because I'm watching the standard definition and I'm used to something that's so. HD, but as you're right when you're watching it, I mean, it's obviously intentional, but the, the lighting of things, the way yeah. it is. Yeah. Well, and, it, and it, was, it was a little jarring for me watching it because it had been probably 16 years. I remember seeing it in the theater. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever rented it or watched it on cable after that. So it was watching it again on DVD that, um, that reintroduced me to it. And I don't think it played as well visually. Like, I, I remember liking it in the theater, but I didn't feel like it worked as well on the small screen. It was like there was too little detail or something. Mm. It was just kind of... See, I didn't, I didn't ever see it in the theater, so that didn't yeah. play to me. I will say, though, that the choices in music are top-notch in this film, I think. Well, get, walk us through some of what you think was there, good there. A lot of the scenes where he, you know, he's doing all the gestures and stuff and looking at the uh-huh. uh, precognitions, there's a lot of like classical music and it's yeah. very very contemplative in those scenes and then suspenseful in others and I I just thought that the contrast of like the future versus like much more like archaic style of music uh, the the contrast there as well as like the contrast in the you know, I, color correction and everything works one of the things well I, I appreciate about the film is how little uh, import, importance it is you know the, the whole premise that they have these precogs that can like see crimes that are going to happen that you just kind of take that. That's that gets the story going. Yeah. So we don't have to worry about that really making much sense. Although right. they do try to make you know justify it somehow. It just starts from that point. What if you had this, and then you know how how would you go about dealing with that? Is it worth it? And I think that right. that's a sign of a very well done sci fi film. Is that the the futuristic thing is just. It it is, and you have to accept that it is, and suspend your disbelief and go and go into it. Right. I thought that uh, Ryan Johnson's Looper did that very well. Yeah, and there's a scene where Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis are sitting in a diner, and want Joseph Gordon-Levitt asks Bruce Willis about time travel, and he says, "Let's let's not get bogged down with all that nonsense right now." <laughs> and they totally just like brush it off and move on, and just if you try to get too much into that stuff, it can really ruin it. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Okay. Well, speaking of that, let's. Get back into this beer here. Uh, so totalitarian, imperial stout, uh, imperial Russian stout, I should say. W- what are you thinking, Carlos? Uh, I'm enjoying it. I think it's pretty good. You know, I Is I it like boozy? it. It's not super boozy for something know? that's over, like you know, just slightly over ten percent. Not 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 boozy at all. I and I say. would and I would chalk some of that up to there's definitely the kind of hop character yeah. that even though it, it isn't in the aroma. It's definitely there in the flavor, and you're definitely getting that like sort of stone hot bitterness um, riding through there. That uh, that kind of it, it takes it away from that uh, place where you know you kind of get maybe too sweet with with the imperial stuff. Yeah. 
if I have a criticism here, it's that it's la- a little lacking in the body. When, I, when I'm drinking something this heavy, I kind of like it to be a little more sticky, you know, kind of have a thicker mouthfeel. This one's a little bit lighter. Um, it makes it easy to kind of drink, although the bitterness kind of slows that down. I think it's a good, decent beer. I don't know that I'm going to be running out to grab another 22-ounce bottle of this, but but yeah, it's good, and it's been been fun to sip on while we've been talking about talking about Minority Report. So I guess that kind of brings us to where we're thinking about what are our thoughts on all of these films and beers that we have encountered this episode. Well, I would say Ready Player One is one that, hey, if you got Movie Pass, go see it. If for nothing else, the shining scene, I unabashedly endorsed and enjoyed that. Otherwise, watch it on, on disc. Didn't see Ready Player One, don't intend to. And we have not convinced uh, you that you need to. No. <laughs> yeah, there's not, nothing about any of the marketing and or this conversation has told me that I need to see it. I think I got what I needed to get from talking to you guys about it. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think I'm the minority report here uh, <laughs> that uh, I do indeed think that this is a movie worth going out to see. Uh, and, I, and I would say in the theater, it is a full-blown sci-fi action flick. I think if you're going to get the uh, benefit of those special effects and the soundtrack and all that, it's it's something that uh, could be a fun fun time at the theater and uh, and you know possibly one for the family though I'd probably say north of ten years old for the uh, for the ages. It's fair. So um, and and in terms of beer, we were drinking the Stone Virtual IPA and where did we land with that one, Carlos? Yeah, pretty good. I found it to be a very palatable IPA. Um, mm-hmm which is not, you know, my go-to or something that I even would prefer and or order of my own accord. But, you know, uh, yeah, definitely uh, definitely didn't hate it. Okay. <laughs> Very good. I, I, would, I would kind of agree. I mean, I, this is, that's kind of where I am. It's not one that I think I'm head over heels about, but I'm happy that I was able to taste it. Good sort of solid stone West Coast IPA. Um, a little maltier than I tend to like my IPAs, but then again, you know, that's different strokes for different folks. You know, what I will say about this totalitarian Russian stout is that it has a very nice aftertaste that I'm enjoying yeah. quite a bit. Yeah, it does hang out on the palate. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing about totalitarians. <laughs> they've, got, they've got a good aftertaste. Eh, maybe they're not so bad. <laughs> you know, keep things running now. Keep things running. Keep the trains on this time. This one is uh, bespoke totalitarianism for the proletariat. Yes. Um, right. So I don't like where we're going here. We can, yeah, we it can sounds negative. <laughs> All right. We want to remind everybody where you can find us at beerinamoviepodcast.com. Uh, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that stuff, Beer in a Movie Podcast. Uh, also, please subscribe to the, uh, to, the, to the podcast. Make sure you get those episodes and help us get our rankings. And if you like what you're hearing, you know, give us a little review. That really helps a lot as well. Um, please uh, log on, check out the website, send us your recommendations for beers we ought to pair with movies, and we look forward to uh, talking to you later about beers and movies. Thank you.